welcome back to Hawk Girl Histories. Long time no see. I'm actually recording this Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. So the first episode came out, I want to say, less than a week ago. Like, I put it up on Spotify. However, to edit that episode, I just want to make everyone clear. To edit that episode, because Kate and I say like and um so much, it took me forever. And also the Wi-Fi was so bad. And so it took forever to get out. But what I want to say is thank you to everyone who has listened those uh, to the first episode. Also got in a lot of fun reactions on Instagram. If you're not following me on Instagram, you should follow it already. But basically what I want to, what I'm trying to say is that we're, I'm recording this episode at a very weird time because Kate and I have not recorded the second part yet. However, I am doing a podcast episode on a completely different topic right now with Kate's flatmate, funny enough, who is actually a fellow historian. So unlike Kate, who was an art historian and a film studies major and um, a girl boss and a, uh, what else? What, what else? A DJ, ho- DJ collective member, graphic designer. General queen. That was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm now here with, <laughs> we gotta take that out. So, I am now here with a spatial historian doing an MLIT in transnational global and spatial history, who happens to be a resident of 100 and something Market Street. I'm not going to tell what flat they live in. A man who is wearing the same outfit as me, basically, right now. He had the audacity to show up at my house in the same outfit as me, even though he didn't know what I was wearing. He is one of the founding members of the Student Solidarity Network in St. Andrews, which I'm going to have him explain. What else? He's also, so he's the one that I actually referenced on the last episode, that he is the only kind of DJ in our friend group who doesn't DJ. Like, there are decks, there are parties, and this man doesn't, and he knows how to do it, but he doesn't DJ. Wow, I'm really selling. (laughs) He's also a fellow survivor of having a father who's a professor. So, without further ado... I am here to, <laughs> I'm going to pronounce his name, last name wrong, it's going to get someone. I'm here to introduce Emil Ethethorides Pratt. Here you are, Emil. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. It's Eleferiatis, <laughs> by the way. What not? Okay, also, we're basically passing back, not a mic now, but my <laughs> my computer until the mic charges, because I didn't know that my mic had to charge. So this is funny. But basically, tell me what nationality that last name is that I couldn't pronounce. It's Greek, if you're referring to the Eleferiatis part. The Pratt <laughs> part is indeed Scottish. Okay, so welcome to the podcast. Not You're not welcome to be hearing your black turtleneck, because I'm also in a black turtleneck. But I want to let yourself introduce yourself. Um, you are also the first male species on this podcast. And you're coming on the podcast a day before International Women's Day. And so I just want to ask, how do you have the audacity to do such a thing? I chose today specifically so I did not take up International Women's Day for a card and stuff. So that's my that's my response. That was, yeah, you're really trying to not get cancelled here. Okay, so what I want to ask you is about, you know, your, your upbringing and how did you get into history? What kind of history kid were you? And what kind of history do you want to do? Does What kind of history do you focus on your master's? Tell me about your master's. Just tell me everything. And then we can get into your, like, social activism stuff. So, upbringing, my father is a professor of film, 
of transnational film specifically Ooh. kind of so that's kind of fun doing a transnational history course and my mum's no kind of because i have to cut them out <clears throat> apologies <laughs> um and i was brought up in glasgow because he was a professor at glasgow and uh my mum's an urban planner which means she's helping do stuff in the city of glasgow and then my sister is uh art curator writer all sorts of creative stuff so we're a full-on creative artsy family it's great fun apart from when my parents want me and my sister to get money for the family because we're <laughs> both unemployable according to many people so that's great fun okay now tell me more about what history kid you were and like what type of history books did you read growing up all that sort of stuff how how did you know you wanted to tell me about your undergrad and your masters firstly shout out to my uk audience <laughs> they'll know <laughs> they'll know um i feel like there's lots of people who studied history who Wait. in the uk who oh, yeah. learn about history <laughs> from horrible histories not, not stopping to let me speak the, oh, what i was gonna say is Wait, what were so you know how in the UK you have to, it's so weird in the US you have to take twelve years of like all subjects like ah. you take science and math and history and English and everything until your final year of high school and so I wonder what were you like for A levels and stuff what did you take so my A levels are or did you take A levels well we don't do A levels in Scotland I I cannot figure it out you meet British people there's so many different systems Scottish US, not British oh, in the US there's just um there's just ap and not ap and honors and that's it like it's so less confusing so in scotland we have the higher and then the advanced higher and you've got national five before then so for my hires i did history politics french english and maths but in history we like focused a lot on wars which was very dull and boring if you're what wars the boring ones so world war one <laughs> Um, and then we did a bit of like the rise of fascism in Italy and Germany, which was a bit more interesting because it's a bit more like actually political. However, yeah, school history is very boring and it's not what got me into history, really. It was more good grades in school history is what got me into history. I've, I mostly read horrible histories when I was a kid and then that got me interested in the idea of history. And then I kind of just really just... Ah, got into history I don't know I kind of fell into it by accident and realized I really liked it I didn't really read much I just ended up thinking oh well, I'm quite good at it and I quite enjoy it so I'll study it and then next thing you know I'm like I'm ready to do a PhD actually I was really into like political history of Britain and also so boring but the wigs and stuff no like radical glasgow like the red kite side okay. and like the revolutions and then also the spanish civil war i've always been a radical a, a person who enjoys radical histories okay call me <laughs> i was gonna actually this actually sucks i was gonna include like resident communist <laughs> or like not actually communist are you actually actually let's go record are you actually communist i can't comment at this possible time <laughs> Okay, so thank you. Now I'll talk about your undergrad, if, you, if you're willing. <clears throat> it happened. The first two years, mm, not enjoyable. Third and fourth year, slightly more enjoyable. Fourth year, that's when I really fell in love with history again, because I started, 
I did a year-long course called uh, The Center of the Refugee, and it was about refugees in, in and around the world from 1900s onwards. So I learned so much about different ways to look at histories of nations beyond the nation, going down to the micro level of a person beyond to the like ideas of transnationalism and universalism and such like. Just been having so much time to be really in depth into a course got me really into the idea of history again. And then during my dissertation in cultural stuff in America, specifically 1960s and the music that came out of the civil rights movement and music from Woodstock and the different impacts they had as cultural products. What was the title of your dissertation? You've sent it to me. So For my life, I cannot remember. Really? I think it's something like... America in the 1960s, the civil rights movement, counterculture and radical politics. No offense, but just stating your thesis America in the 1960s is a bit, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I'm apologies. I did not go to a good university. You did. Glasgow's not a bad UD. Mm. <laughs> I won't comment at this time. Okay. Well, thank you very much. What about your master's? Why did you apply to a master's? When did you apply? Because you came straight from undergrad to master's. Well, I applied because I originally would have really liked to get a grad job, but then I realized I actually really enjoyed history and I was looking for a master's program that kind of suited stuff to do with refugee history, which is what I thought I wanted to get into. Mm. Um, so I was looking and I could find, I could fi couldn't find much. And I want, knew I wanted to do modern history and I knew I wanted to go to a university by the seaside, which so sounds, sweet. which sounds, peculiar but I applied to Bristol uh, University of Sussex with a Brighton campus and University of St Andrews which were all on the so seaside um, and St Andrews course was the only one that really spoke to me I even got to meet like the the coordinator before I even accepted my offer I came to St Andrews to visit him and we had like a one-on-one -on -one discussion which made me realize that like, this is the place for me I've got so much freedom because it's not set courses mm. it's the idea is if you find something interesting and you can talk about it in a transnational way, in a yeah. spatial way or in a global way, <clears throat> go do it. And I thought, yeah, hell yeah. And also my sister came here, so that kind of played into it. Um, <laughs> she did her undergrad here, so it made me think, hmm, I can live in the footsteps of my sister <laughs> as I'll always be in her shadow. <laughs> what do you think of Zenodo so far? So you had this really sweet quote when, um, oh my gosh you the way that fergus you and murray are just like being shouted out on this pod when murray came to visit it because you said that you had chatted before and you're like oh, being in st andrews is just one long sleepover how have you liked being in st andrews in september i met emil because he lives with kate and like he lives with three of my best friends and i remember i was like oh you know master's student like what are you doing your master's in and he was like oh transnational global spatial history i was like there's actually no way because I did my research for laid law in transnational history. And I, I work with Dr. Bernard Strzok, who will soon be on the pod. He'll be soon one of the other men on this pod. And my dad. Those are the only people that I will allow on here that are males. But I was like, there's actually no way because that's my specialty, actually. So you're coming from my brand. But what I realized is you're actually not coming from my brand. I think we have different interests within the same sort of field and circles. But I really enjoy that. So tell me what you think about St. Andrews. And also, can you tell me after a bit more about like refugee history? Because I'm really interested in that. So St. Andrews, I thought so far it's been 
it's bizarre is the best way to put it that everyone that i've met is really nice and really welcoming but also at the same time the institution is so bizarre <laughs> and there's so many weird traditions and like thankfully i was a bit briefed for my sister about what it was going to be like knowing and having like experienced her going through the traditions I was kind of prepared for that but it's kind of been a bit of a whirlwind I remember coming here and not expecting to like maybe straight away make friends but within a couple of weeks I was planning to trips with my friends or planning to go different places and it's all it's all been like moved quite fast but I've enjoyed just spending the time in a place like that is as nice as St Andrews but also academically been really challenged all the time by my professors who all I think have their own niches but they really try and push each student to explore their niche and push Mm -hmm. them really hard to like really learn about their niche and not just shallowly to get good marks but to actually become an expert of their niche which I think is very good and then in terms of refugee history it's it's an interesting field because there's almost no primary sources or if almost all of the primary sources are from state actors Mm. or international actors like the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Mm. So it's a lot more about discussing the theories of movement and discussing the theories of why people move, how people move, Mm. what happens when they move, where they move to, what the impact of moving across borders does. And for example, how like nation building can impact refugees. And there's a lot of examples of that in the Balkans, which I recommend if you're interested, it's a good place to check out. Speaking of refugees, the Muse campaign uh, that launched just a few days ago, launched by Cash, the campaign for affordable student housing and refugee action St. Andrews. Uh, Emil and I are both on Cash. I was on Cash before Emil was, two years before he was, actually. But that is a campaign related to student accommodation. So the compla- campaign includes an open letter that I'll link somewhere, probably on my socials, uh, Hawk Girl Histories on Instagram. And Twitter. And Twitter, yeah, I made a Twitter. Guys, let's not get into Twitter. In this short amount of time of being on Twitter, I realized how... Everyone always talks about how bad Twitter is, but now I'm really realizing how bad Twitter is. Like, why are people so mad and, like, weird, like, with their opinions all the time? The issue is that since 2020, the University of St. Andrews has provided accommodation for students living in Dundee through a partnership with Mirrors Student Life. And Mirrors Student Life belongs to the Mirrors Group PLC, which is a housing and social care provider in the UK, and it's one of the three private companies contracted by the Home Office to manage asylum accommodation. There's been a lot of issues actually in Glasgow with their asylum, which maybe uh, Emil can talk about. Basically, the, the accommodation for St. Andrews students here in Dundee is, first of all, St. Dundee, second of all, yours is the only student accommodation they've ever made, like, they're, they've made accommodation for asylum seekers, which have terrible human rights violations and stuff. But this is the only student accommodation that they've made, which is just like, why did the university enter a partnership with them? And we're going to ask on this today's episode, we're going to go why to the university a lot. <laughs> but the open letter, please do sign if you can. It's on my Instagram and I will also link it somewhere else. Basically, mirrors are horrible people and... During COVID, the Home Office realized that a lot of the accommodation for asylum seekers and refugees was not going to be COVID compliant. So they moved a lot of those who were scheduled to be deported to hotels in Glasgow and mirrors ran these hotels and they treated the people in there horribly. There was all sorts of horrific stuff that happened from murders to 
suicides to stuff like that. So they're horrible people. And in Glasgow, there was a lot of effort to try and stop them from being contracted by the Home Office. But obviously, they still are. And St Andrews still decides to work with them. Yes. Okay. can you talk about the Student Solidarity Network? Picture the scene. (laughs) A bunch of student activists from different groups get called to a meeting by a group called End Fossil, which is like a multinational group that is trying to get fossil fuel companies and such like out of university campuses and to decarbonize a lot of the education in universities. They were successful in Barcelona, etc, etc. And we met and we were deciding on action to do and a bunch of us, myself included, Socialist Society members, Campaign for Affordable Student Housing members, all decided that maybe if we all have similar goals, we should maybe start a group to have those similar goals. We're always at the picket lines and the strikes. We share a lot of the same beliefs. So then why don't we work together to at least pull our resources, pull our manpower, not manpower, pull our people power. Jesus, this man calls himself an activist. Um, so we thought that was a very good way to like make sure that we can actually do stuff rather than talk about doing stuff. Yeah. We've yet to do stuff, but <laughs> we're planning on doing stuff. Um, and essentially, if you're in St Andrews, you should like us on Facebook. Free plug. We will be updating you about stuff that's going to be happening this semester. They're also on Instagram and Twitter. I have the best story. When I didn't even know Emil that well, I wanted to go do student solidarity meetings. I wanted someone to take over Davis Border St. Andrews, which is a campaign that is in the similar realm of the Mears campaign. The Mears campaign is just from, but basically it's a, it's a whole different campaign about the border industry and having the university divest from borders and it's under people and planet. And so I asked Emil, I was like, can I come to the student solidarity network meeting so that I can have someone from student solidarity network take over? And then I show up, it's in his living room. He's put the Antifa flag on the wall. It's probably eight to ten white men. Who's not white? (laughs) Emil looked at me like, sure, sure. Okay, when I went to the meeting, it was all men. And they all looked... Male presenting, perhaps. Male presenting, fine, okay. (laughs) I will say, and it was all, it was exactly what I expected of socialist society, men that want to be involved in, I guess, community action. Some I know do really good stuff. Some I don't really know what they're doing. But it was very funny because I was just sitting there in this room full of male presenting people. And I said, I think, two things. One of the things I said, everyone was like, no, 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 no. And I was like, great. This is definitely the place for me. And I was like, there's actually no way I'm ever going back. Like, I bet they're, hey, I bet they're lovely people. And I know some of them on the, uh, like, in the outside world, outside of Students on Air Network, and they're lovely. It was just very funny that I was in a room full of, like, white men being like, hey, anyone want to take over this campaign? And I was the only woman there when I, like, gave my opinion. It didn't go down very well. And they also, like, I don't know. They were just, it was so, like, stereotypical. Anyway, do you have any comments? <laughs> I would like to say that there is a lot of diversity in the Student Solidarity Network now. And Claire is just a (laughs) hater. No, I support all the work you guys. Rioter, looter, anarchist. Hey, I'm literally not. Entryist. um, What? What is Trotskyite. 
What does that mean? What, what are these? I know Trotsky, but I don't know what this all means. Yeah. So don't trust a word she's hey, saying. She's a counter-revolutionary. Podcast. I'm gonna read out a meme and then I'm gonna have you respond to it because I saw this meme and it really made me think of you. Maybe you want to comment at the end. That's it. it. Says, marry a man who says things like, "I do not watch or enjoy films. I have never been a DJ. I don't know how to play any instrument or sing. I am not an artist. I never had an interest in learning to skateboard. I have a healthy relationship with my mother or another maternal figure in my life, so I will not treat you like one." I go to therapy on a regular basis. Comments. So, I'm, I do watch and enjoy films. I have DJed. I do know how to play the tuba. I am not an artist. Open parentheses yet. Close parentheses. I, I did once want to skateboard. I do, however, do have a very healthy relationship with my mother. Okay, Shout out, Lindsay. One out of, like, five. And I used to go to therapy on a regular basis. I don't need it anymore because I am healed. Oh, yes. <laughs> Green so, flag when your man says he's healed. So, all I have to say is, I actually think um, I'm epic, and <laughs> this meme is wrong, because it's written by a, a, an account that's called Blady Fan one, two, three, four, five, six, and we all know Blady Fans or drainers, as they're called, <laughs> are utterly unwashed and don't tend to shower. What, what do, you, do you mean genuinely unwashed? So they're like the CS guys. Yeah. Jesus. Shout out Fergus Buchanan. <laughs> Fergus Buchanan's like that one clean band we know. Sorry, CS band. Okay, also the other thing I wanted to say, I was having a conversation with Emil about him coming on my pod, and then we I said he was started talking, and then I was like, stop mansplaining or something of the sort. We're like, thanks for mansplaining. And then we were laughing. We had this conversation about like men who are scared of women saying that they're mansplaining. And I just had flashbacks to like when my exes would be like <laughs> when I'd say something funny, like, oh, just like why are you mansplaining or like you don't have to mansplain that to me as a joke obviously a joke when they were like explaining something and they would get so defensive or be like i'm not <laughs> like and shit like that and i just want to say ladies if you're man this is now turning into color daddy ladies if your man gets scared or like gets defensive when you make a joke about mansplaining just run like there's no point also if your guy says not all men red freaking flag okay all men because we're under a patriarchal society in which all men are susceptible to abusing women susceptible not not that all men do do you want to explain why you wrote men's way manipulate mustache because i have a dashing mustache okay great so now we're gonna actually get into the episode, which is called Decolonizing Spaces of Knowledge. I wanted to call it Yassifying the Museum, but Emil thought otherwise. So the context, I think Emil can explain it because it's kind of based on his readings for this week, right? Yes. So in the element of my course that's talking about space or like spatial history, we've had a lot of discussion in spaces of knowledge and that includes places in which science is produced information is produced but also where history and such like is displayed whether that's a museum a natural history museum manor houses gosh even universities a lot of these places are 
in the UK and other colonial countries like the Netherlands, France and Spain often uphold a lot of the colonial narratives which founded these museums in the first place. And because of this, there's a lot of issues with these museums. In the course, we talked a lot about in actually the situation of being in a museum, we were in St. Andrew's Natural History Museum, which is the Bell Pettigrew Museum. Not shout out Bell Pettigrew, <laughs> colonizer, who just had a ton of money and that's why he could do stuff. And his wife actually. S- side bit, I want to talk about this very quickly. That's fine. Um, so basically, the museum was his wife's idea. So when he died, his wife said, Oh, I'd love for his collection of like animals that he'd collected <laughs> on his colonial explorations to be shown in the Wait, university. Maybe he collected them like. He went around the place and he bought collect bought these like animals. But that they been, must have died. Yeah, so they put them in they, like taxidermy. They, they taxidermied them. The taxidermy is terrible in this place, by the way. Um. Anyway, moving Can't on. Can't wait to talk about one of the animals. So, the wife put a ton of money to the St. Andrews. Um, I've got the name of the wife. She's a legend for doing this. But anyway, she started the museum. However, at the dinner to commemorate this, she wasn't invited because it was. Of course. <laughs> it was the Victorian era and women weren't allowed to these such high society academic events. So she d- couldn't go to the dinner commemorating her husband. Great. And in the museum itself, there is perhaps one placard commemorating her, despite the fact she was the one who came mm. up with the idea of the museum. Bell Pratiker himself never wanted to display this stuff to the general public. So there you are. There's a fun little... Do you think that's ethical, though, that she was like, okay, you're dead, I'm going to put all your stuff to the public? Well, I think she did it to showcase his collection and his accomplishments and in honour of him because he worked as a professor for the university for a while. So that's where our class was and we kind of walked around our professor, Sarah Easterby-Smith. Shout out. Shout out indeed. She's currently working with people in that museum to work on decolonizing. We're gonna the get there. We're gonna get there. However, we had the class there and it was just very interesting discussing when looking at it very much in front of you how the museums and different museums can uphold the colonial narrative. And that's why I thought it would be a very good idea to do a podcast on this because it's a very important topic. It's still in the news. It's constantly evolving. There's articles coming out mm. about it all the time. Um so may as well get on the on the train or about talking about it we are indeed on the train emil and i have so many good episode ideas guys like you don't even know some of the stuff we have in store one of them is like a history of punk and another one is a top secret visit to an archive maybe maybe y'all will just have to wait and see so to start thank you emil for that introduction to start i want to talk about decolonization as a word because to me i think it gets thrown around because I literally have a shirt that says decolonize her mind. And I wear it with the idea that I believe that there is decolonization to be done in your mind, in your intellectual ideas when you grow up like me in a small suburban white middle to upper class town in Massachusetts. <laughs> but I also realize that when I wear that shirt, it's mostly just performative. Like, I don't think anyone sees my shirt and goes home and says, I'm going to start decolonizing my ways of thinking. So, and I got it from, like, a secondhand thrift place. But they make these decolonize your mind shirts a lot. What do you think about using decolonization as a term? How do we use it correctly? What does it actually mean? Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I would agree that for a lot of 
a lot of the time it can just be a buzzword a museum or an institution can say we're, we're going to work to decolonize our curriculum or the exhibitions when realistically they're just going to do a little bit they're going to do the bare minimum of what they need to do or they're just going to say it what it actually means is i think put very well by uh, one of the readings i had to do for this week which is that decolonizing is a process um and it decolonization is a process it's constantly evolving it's constantly changing the structures that museums are holding it's actively fighting against the the thematic racism and systematic colonial narratives that uphold a lot of these institutions and that these institutions have helped to create and continue to create mm. and that's what it means versus for a lot of people they can just an institution could just say it um but there's the counterpoint that perhaps these places these institutions should use decolonization and decolonize a process of decolonization in tandem with the form of anti-racism because mm -hmm. that anti-racism this is something we discussed is that in terms of semantics and what that actually means it means actively taking on and being against mm. actively racist practices and institutions that are systematically racist mm. and perhaps that's a better word to use there are other issues that go beyond race with museums so there's a lot more to be used with decolonization it covers a broader range of issues but anti-racist and decolonization is probably the two words that should be used because in tandem they both mean actively fighting against the systems that uphold racism and colonialism wonderful explanation thank you for that so to get into it, in the UK, theories of decolonization have been circling around in academic and museum theory circles in 2018, but it didn't really pick up much traction until the murder of George Floyd, which brought widespread Black Lives Matter protests to the UK. Um, of course, in the US, there was an insane amount of protests, as there should have been as well. And the murder was in the summer of 2020, I believe. So with these protests and also the toppling of Edward Colston's statue in Bristol, do you know who Edward Colston is? Edward Colston was this slave owner and slaver who profited a ton from slavery. Um, had a statue in Bristol. It's because with that money, he donated a lot of it to charity. So a lot of people thought we should build a statue of him when realistically he was just a colonizing bastard, really. Um, so they toppled the statue during a protest in Bristol and they threw it in the sea and now there's just an empty plinth and the people who did it didn't go to jail, which is very cool. Love. After that, there became a renewed focus on facing legacies of British colonialism. From slavery and concentration camps to stealing um, British artifacts from indigenous people, there's a wide range of past atrocities that have to be reckoned with uh, institutions and also by the public, I would say. So an example of the theory and discussion being produced prior to this is seen in the Netherlands. Alongside the UK and France, the Netherlands is one of the most uncritical viewpoints on its colonial past. You see this in modules you take in first and second year um, history at uni, how you learn how the Dutch Empire was so vast and one of the first early empires that really prof profited off of not only slavery, but all sorts of colonial practices. And Amsterdam's Tropen Museum is a museum that markets itself as a museum of different cultures, but it was essentially the museum of the Dutch Empire and its exploitation. So recognizing this, activists and academics such as Wasami, thank you, began to research into the impacts of the colonial narratives in this said museum. 
and the museum published a pamphlet called Words Matter, which explores the different ways in which actual label text and exhibition text uphold white supremacist ideas and colonial narratives. So Emil wrote this part, and I want to ask, so did they specifically go into their exhibition texts and say, like, how it was misleading before? So they explored the different words used. So words for indigenous people that are now considered very offensive and such like to um, be using words that kind of imply that indigenous people no longer exist. Yeah. Asked there were these indigenous people and not their contemporary context of the indigenous people. Um, kind of done by the museum, kind of done by the academics and activists. I think the ac- academics and activists got a lot of free reign to do it how they wanted mm-hmm. to do it. Um, the article itself is very good, and I recommend you read it. It's got like a ton of glossary on words matter. Oh, okay. Um, it's a it's a pamphlet called Words Matter, and it's got a lot of the at the end. It's got a glossary of an A to Z of terms that they highlighted as either with that were used in the museum, and then kind of gave alternatives of what should be used, or and why those words can uphold colonial ideas, and why those words can be racist. And it's, I think, it's just a very good way for a museum to tackle it, what it, like how they, how they were continuing to uphold those narratives. Do you have any examples of um, those words? Because I know you were talking to me about that glossary. I have the, that specific part. I left it with my, my dad so he can decolonize his curriculum and his words. So a good example from the pamphlet is the word native. And it suggests the history, the use, and the possible sensitivities of the word native. And it says, whilst it's commonly used historically, the term has been criticized for not only reinforcing colonial hierarchies, natives were regarded as inferior to the civilized colonizer, but also contradictorily for implying an exclusionary racial and ethnic right to a place by a specific group. This term is currently used by some, for example, Native Americans and their political claims for sovereignty. Within Europe, this concept is increasingly used in xenophobic politics. Within the Netherlands, native is most commonly used to describe indigenous Indonesians. And it suggests that that should be used with caution. But for example, bringing attention to the different meanings of the word and by stating that there are problems with that word. However, for people, it can be used. It allows people to actually like reckon with how they use language. And I think that's such a big problem. And the way a lot of people approach history is that they just use certain words without actually knowing their meaning or how to describe certain people in different parts of the world. I think that's, oh my God, I just spilled the water again. We've spilled three waters because we're recording on the floor. So like in my bedroom, so we keep on putting water on the floor and then we keep on pushing it over. I was going to say, one of my favorite things with my English and modern history degree is how we are both encouraged and also warned of how we use language and when you use any sort of term like for example I wrote an essay about identity in Polish migrant women and it was super important for me to go into like a whole paragraph of what do I mean by identity and I think that's something that in history in English at least you really have to be careful with your terms and the professors will call you out and say define your terms and um, not necessarily in a colonial context. Like they don't think they would go to the extent of saying you shouldn't use this word. I think they would. They just want you to justify what words are using in any context. Like at the SUNY, I feel like, which I really actually 
appreciate. I would agree. And I think it's one of the it's one of the most important parts of history is the definitions that we use. And I remember my first like big seminar that I had here that was for the institute and there was just a huge debate that lasted maybe 30 minutes about the definition of a revolution. So it goes to <laughs> yeah, show you. I've heard about that debate as well, actually. So it goes to show you how much people care about definitions in history, especially when you get to the academic level, which is why it's very important to bring attention to what these definitions mean. So Hadan Wasami's article in this pamphlet, Mechanisms and Tropes of Colonial Narratives, describes how these museums actually uphold the colonial ideas and he starts by discussing in 2015 how he led a group of mostly queer people of color through the Tropen Museum in Amsterdam and asked them to describe their experience describe how they felt a lot said that they instantly felt discomfort when they walked in and that their presence was not welcome and that whilst they were open to the idea of their heritage and culture being displayed in the museum they felt that it was an othering experience in that they felt they were being immediately pushed to the margins of history or that their culture was pushed to the margins of history and it was instead focusing on the Dutch side of history. And similarly, the white participants of the intervention said they felt uncomfortable at the uncritical and exoticizing gaze the museum deployed, meaning that for Dutch people who were looking at that, they could see that it was upholding ideas from the Dutch Empire, and they felt uncomfortable with that as well. Um, and it kind of opens up the debate on who museums are there to serve and attract. A lot of people will argue beyond the museums themselves, museums will always say they are seeking to increase diversity. A lot of people will argue the museums, not that they should be, that because of the way they are built and because of the way they operate, attract white middle-class straight people who are from that country and that is immediately where you can understand a lot of the discomfort in these museums can i interrupt in a way about audiences so i'm currently working on an exhibition with a few academics here at the uni which will probably be on my pod soon at the wardlaw museum which we're going to speak about later um, because they had an exhibition that we want to talk about. And when you actually, I guess, apply to make an exhibition, you have to write about, you know, who is this exhibition going to attract and like, will it actually bring people to the museum? Obviously, it's a different experience making that, you know, applying to make an exhibition with academics at the uni, in the uni museum, basically, rather than at the British Museum, which has a permanent collection. But when you were speaking about, like, white middle-class people from the country, I was thinking about how my experience of, like, big national museums, like the British Museum, is you go there, there's children running about, (laughs) and there's also a ton of tourists that are coming and taking photos of, like, these masterpieces and stuff like, quote, I'm saying quote-unquote masterpieces, and these things that you know, have been taken from the land that they were originally from and are now being, you know, shut audiences. I also think the museum as an institution is so connected with academia in a way and with high class, not upper middle class, but like genuinely the highest ranks of society of not with necessarily 
historical museums or these art museums of course the people who buy and sell art are the highest the most rich people in society so i think it's interesting because not only to me is it just people from the country and white middle class but you also have the upper class and you also just tourists and visitors and you also i think a lot of museums will also appeal to children especially like natural history museums which i think is another whole different story of that's actually a really interesting question that would be interesting to look kind of like how do especially with history how do museums interact with children and attract children and what narratives do children form from museums because I just feel like museums is like when you have kids it's like on a rainy day oh god we can't go to the park we're gonna go to this museum you know with like animals or with dinosaurs we'll get into natural history a bit later there's an interesting point about children and it's actually something that museums can deploy as a counterpoint mm. to some people who are attempting to decolonize oh, the process yeah. because I get that. they it's more gruesome. and that will be talked about in a bit talking about a specific project that was done in Birmingham so yeah these truths of the museum experience that Hadan Warsami explores these spaces of knowledge they need to be become inclusive so that the knowledge becomes widespread that people can learn good from learning which is a hugely important thing and I think the Museums Association, which is the UK-wide group for museums, makes an excellent point in their article or their part of the website that discusses decolonizing museums. It says, decolonization is not simply the relocation of a statue or an object. It is a long-term process that seeks to recognize the integral role of empire in museums. Mm. From their creation to the present day, decolonization requires a reappraisal of our institutions and their history and an effort to address colonial structures an approach to all areas of museum work. And I think it shows how vital a topic of discussion it is, especially given that, that in here is historians who... Oh, hell yeah, we are historians. ...who've studied a bit, four years of history now, and are looking to advance in the academic world as historians. Our knowledge of this versus the knowledge of the average person who goes to museum is, yeah. very, is, is a gap there in terms of the history of colonialism or the museums and the theory of spaces and I think it's important that the process of decolonizing it's always made sure to be able to keep up to what is being told and don't can't just walk by or think I don't I don't have the ability to understand that mm. and I think that's a very important part is that it's not just decolonizing it's making making it more accessible making it more inclusive and that's an it's an excellent point that is made in the article as well is that for disabled people oh, yeah. who are going for a museum. There's some museums where they can't get close enough to an exhibit because yeah. it doesn't prohibit wheelchair access. Or the, if you're less visually able, you can not always see you because there's not, and get descriptions of it rather, because there's not the adequate descriptions of the exhibit, or there's no lifts, or there's no wheelchair access. Then there's a wide variety of stuff like that. I we've brought that up because one of I know my listeners, my dear friend Anne, who is an art history major, who she did her Laidlaw research. We are both Laidlaw girls. On no, sorry, she did her Laidlaw leadership and action project, um, making museums more accessible and specifically work specific museum. I want to say in Amsterdam actually, that current exhibitions into being accessible and informative for I believe blind people and so they were exciting with having people touch some certain or making it that people can feel the art and also I imagine 
have some sort of audio quality to it as well. But there are these initiatives going on uh, for accessibility. And um, I just remember hearing about her project being like, wow, that's so cool. So I thought I would bring that up. Liam's association put prior and they kind of nod towards there's the idea of restitution, which is the process of returning artifacts to their origin countries from stolen artifacts to entire parts of buildings. And it's been a hot topic of, of discussion for a while. Mm. There is a bit of a drama with Glasgow Life, which is the kind of company in Glasgow that manages the museums. The with arms company? Arms Length Company. Oh my God. <laughs> I thought you were right. was an arms and missile company. Like... No, 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 no. <laughs> which were the first UK like museum group to begin the process of restitution of artifacts to India. And similarly, they've signed deals with different groups of Native Americans and they're working on processes of restitution of certain artifacts, which I think is an interesting point, but it brought a lot of, a lot and a lot of discussion from tabloids. And we can see that in the former British Prime Minister, Mr. Boris Johnson. Oh, boo, boo. I was going to say. In recent, very recently to this podcast being recorded within the, on the weekend, um, discuss the Elgin Marbles, which is mm. basically a quarter of the Parthenon. Oh, um, yes. I So, talking about museum stuff, the thing that came to my mind was these memories of going to the British Museum and I think seeing the Parthenon and seeing, like, the children running around, but also um, the, like, tourists taking photos going in and seeing these, like, ruins that are very well preserved and that basically replicate, you know, these ancient civilizations. But you're like, why are they here? Also, another thing with accessibility is what's nice now i think in most countries national museums are free but that's a whole other story about access to museums like even if you have oh god i went to the mfa guys i went to the master of fine arts museum in boston uh winter break guess how much it cost me to go it cost 30 bucks as a student this is a master of fine arts museum wait no museum of fine arts <laughs> master of fine arts museum whoa okay interrupt you go on well yeah the Sorry. museums are often very expensive, but the so the Elgin Marbles, for example, there's been a huge campaign recently from the Greek side. Some of it is electioneering, but that doesn't really matter. Um, to bring the Elgin Marbles or the Parthenon stones back to the Parthenon Museum, which if you've not been, I recommend if you're ever in Athens to go. It's one of the most stunning museums I've ever been to. And one of the most important parts about it is you go to the top floor where the marbles the rest of the marbles are and you can see what's missing and you can see what's in the british museum and they say we can't complete this because Whoa. we don't have the ownership to these at the moment so it, despite so the fact they're they should be with the rest of it so you can see the complete work of these ancient people who managed to do the most amazing artwork in marble and i think it's very interesting because boris johnson is a big ancient history nerd is he actually yeah yeah he loves is the romans yeah yeah oh. so he loves the romans he loves he loves ancient greece stuff like that and he's a lot of white supremacist people like yeah so it's it's you no, not not the staff at the university of st andrews the people who run the ancient history models in the university of st andrews are like the best people in the world not them they slay and the people who take the class are also sorry. There are bad people who end up getting yeah. involved in ancient history of Roman Greece. Yeah. But anyway, he said 
and I think this quote's so telling of the opposite side because obviously we're discussing this as two people on the left side of politics. Who said I'm not? I'm kidding. She's a Tory. Um, <laughs> and it just kind of shows what the fight's against and why it's so important to discuss this without and to take critically head on what people like mm-hmm. Boris Johnson said. He said, if you give back the Elgin Marbles to Greece, then you leave a huge gap in that narrative. And above all, you have no answer in the years ahead to the theoretical claims for restitution from Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, Nigeria, everywhere whose treasures are housed in Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury is where the British Museum is. Um, in trying to please the world and correct thinking, you've deprived the world of one of its great treasures and cut some vital panels from its great pageant of human progress. <laughs> what? Which, despite the very annoying language used by Boris Johnson. Also, the there, way he lists so many countries. And yeah, exactly. He points to the fact that the UK has so much artifacts from across the world it essentially shows what we're up against and what why this is such a process because even if museums are doing it for the right reasons not just for publicity they're fighting against tabloid media Mm. they're fighting against right-wing press they're fighting against politicians like boris johnson who try and make the claim that british for example the british museum is the only place where you can access history that the idea that you could separate Nigerian history from Turkish history in a singular building is going to destroy the understanding of global <laughs> history. It's utter, utterly stupid and it's so harmful. I was going to say bollocks. Um, but it shows, it shows that even in an example of Greece, a country that was never colonised by the UK, mm. on whatever returning part of a flagship and culturally important monument to greece is the right thing to do and that's insane to me is that even in a country like greece it's in the eu like mm. the for colonialists etc greece should not be something that they see as like oh it's it's decolonizing to hand back the elgin marbles but they still refuse to do it because they don't see it as the right thing to do mm. uh, so it suggests that in telling the story of the past britain is the only storyteller in the history of the world or that colonial countries are the only storytellers. They're the yeah. only people capable, whether that's because the museums have higher technology or because they have better universities, yeah. that they're the only people capable of telling the story, which, again, just upholds those colonial narratives. Even if even if it's not directly saying we are better than you, they're implying yeah. that we are better than you, which is or horrific. we, because we are in, like, a wealthy, quote-unquote, country, that we deserve to have these high art high history monuments and that a country that is say going through a terrible time probably because of co- the legacies of colonialism does not deserve that artifact because um it won't be seen by that many people because i imagine they're thinking oh people won't fly to that country it's because the country is not doing well that it doesn't deserve to art i think that's a, like a, a big question of like i think scene is only something that appreciated in peacetime or something like if some country is going through a huge conflict that they don't deserve to have access to art or that to display their art and that they're less worthy so i was wondering if now you could give us more examples of exhibitions that you think have done really well with decolonizing how they're dealing with historical objects or reconciling with colonial legacies. Yes, yeah, so on the other side of all the problems with the decolonizing structures and like decolonizing museums face, when you actually work, so it works really well. And there's a really good example from Birmingham Museum, which was in around 2017, 2018, 
which in the grand scheme of it, like for museums, was a bit ahead of its time. That they sought to actually have an exhibition that was quite permanent. I mean, it was only there for a year, but a proper exhibition on decolonizing, which was called "The Past Is Now," which was curated and written by a group of cultural activists, museum workers, and academics who wanted to essentially have an exhibition that talked about the crimes of the British Empire and their legacy today. And there's a really good video, which I think everyone should watch, which in which two of the participants in the exhibition talk on their experience from how they felt and how the museum provided difficulties and how they managed to get the exhibition done and why they felt the exhibition needed to be done, which is you can find on museumnext.com in a bit about decolonizing museums. I think it's very interesting and I think everyone should watch it especially in the way they describe the process of bringing an exhibition to practice, especially one that is going to gather a lot of controversy for no reason, but will gather controversy. So what they spoke about, which I think is very important, is firstly the semantics, which is, again, something that's talked about a lot, but essentially in the preparation for the exhibition, they would submit texts, whether that's the pamphlet, she had da-da-da-da-da, for the exhibition. And whenever they would do that, they would constantly get these pamphlets edited by the museum owners or the people in charge of the museum that were just commissioning them to do this exhibition. So for example, they would have words such as racism, concentration camps, and exoticize. And the museum told them, oh no, you can't keep, you can't keep them in because it's going to scare the clientele away. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to have a broad base of customers. Mm-hmm. And this is essentially because the people who run the permanent museum base they basically didn't want their customer base to not go because they see their customer base as white middle class straight british people Mm. and they didn't want them to feel uncomfortable on a nice day trip with their kids Mm. when realistically this is a museum nonetheless that has benefited hugely from the colonial past of britain given birmingham's place as a place of huge industry during the colonial period but this is a common theme. People go to museums expecting to see art or a bit about the past and stuff that they know. And they don't really want to be made uncomfortable, especially mm-hmm. in a general museum. Like if you think about going to the British Museum or whatever, you think, oh, I'm just going to go to a museum and I'm going to see some nice stuff and it's going to be interesting. But realistically, people end up having to see uncomfortable stuff. And then you have the like the other side of that, which is people always, people go to museums that will make them uncomfortable. You have like the Holocaust museums, you have museums of slavery, you've got Anne Frank Museum uh, in like Amsterdam. And there's a good example that I've had myself is that in Warsaw, there's the Museum of Jewish History. And shout out Warsaw. Shout out Warsaw. And I knew what was going to, I was in for, I knew it wasn't going to be completely about World War II and persecution and or about pogroms. I didn't, I, I knew it wasn't going to just be explicitly about that, but I knew what I was in for and going for that. And you was going to make me feel uncomfortable. It was going to make me feel like bad, but nonetheless, if it's a general museum or just a museum that's not specifically advertising as something that's going to make you uncomfortable, the people who go there, the middle class, you know, white British people who go to the British Museum, to, the Birmingham Museum, to see this exhibition, will like feel that they didn't sign up for it, that they've paid entry, or maybe not paid entry, but they've signed up to not feel uncomfortable and they've been made to feel uncomfortable. Mm. And there's a really good article in this by Zandra Yemen from the University of Glasgow, shout out. 
my own decode. The alma mater. Shout out the alma mater, who (laughs) is the curator of discomfort, which is essentially uh, she works for the museum of the university there, the Hunterian Museum, as some form of a curator of discomfort. And in an article she wrote for their website, official like yeah. So she's called the curator of discomfort. Well, she argues that her job role is the curator of discomfort. And she wrote an article for the this museum, the Hunterian, in their academic blogs when they discussed the practice of how they decided to do the museum. She says, this comfort is necessary for genuine change. Addressing the legacy is neither only about debating what we do with statues honouring the people who perpetuated a racist ideology, nor is it redecorating the structures built from the proceeds of the transatlantic and empire trades. Addressing the legacy is dismantling the structural and institutional racism that is perpetuated today and transforming com- comfortable narratives to include the uncomfortable, unvarnished truth, which is it's essentially the point that we can't make the change happen without making people uncomfortable, without make, making people realise that there is stuff that's made people's life... That, yeah, that there's, there is stuff that continues to destroy people's lives and there is mm. structures in place that continue to do that our legacy from the colonial period and until we actually make people think oh my god i can't believe the country that i'm from did this to people and i've not confronted this then nothing will change because people would just think well we did nothing wrong we had a couple of colonies that's it and i think it's really interesting when we think about discomfort as well with you give the example of going to a holocaust museum the jewish history museum or something of that sort you are kind of prepared i think one thing on that note of Holocaust museums, Germany, I think, is a really interesting example of a power that nowadays, like with the aftermath of the Holocaust in World War II, so took such a stance of owning up to their past and owning up to the events that happened that now you can't make any real claims that Germany nowadays has any sympathy for Nazis, like at all. And so it's like the way that they've dealt with national museums with their the legacy of traumatic events, everyone feels much more comfortable experiencing the discomfort. But while I think the big difference is in the UK, while there's so like, it was, colonialism was so violent, genocidal and um, sexual violence, all sorts of violence. And there's still this ability because it's further put back. I would say that in English class or in history class, you can say, yeah, but it was a long time ago. Like we read a text, um, say in English, and it's like there's this really terrible portrayal of, say, like a um, someone in the colonies, and the way that it's like, oh, yep, that's the British Empire. But you like kind of skim over it. It's not like let's actually really digest why this person is being portrayed in such a demonic like way because they are part of empire and like this is the legacy of empire. Anyway, well, I I, I also think on the Germany example as well it's like even with restitution of art that was stolen mm. during world war ii there's no claims that it should be kept in germany yeah like people just say yeah we'll give it back yeah sorry which is but it's, what else can you do yeah. what else can you do and it's the fact that places like britain like france like the holland the hollands the netherlands <laughs> will never just never seem to be able to do that without and it has to be individual institutions that choose to do that I think what the discomfort idea is really important is that like we can't decolonize and nor can we change anything to do with institutional like structures that uphold inequality without making ourselves uncomfortable with the fact that it was our predecessors who did this 
especially white British people need to mm. come to terms with the fact. And I think this is maybe this is a bit of a sidebar. This is a huge problem in Scotland is that in England, mm. a lot of people, not a lot of people, but people in England are more willing to accept that because of the manner in which Scotland and Scottish people try and distance themselves from England as much as possible, mm. especially with ideas that oh Scotland was colonized, which is mm. stupid, but it's the idea that Scotland didn't take part in the empire because for some that for some reason we we didn't have agency in that, mm. or that Scotland didn't have agency in participating in the British Empire when okay, when the Scotland was independent prior, there was two colonies we had. They both fell apart because we were shit at running them. <laughs> um, basically. Which one? There was one in the Bay of Mexico and there was one somewhere else. There was one might have been in one of Massachusetts, actually. What? Before the Brits got there. Then the Scots just kind of bandwagon on the British Empire and profited and benefited hugely from that. Even if we're a smaller country, so we had a less overall amount of people taking part, we still took part. And I think it's interesting that that's another layer to it is that in certain places where there is that kind of power imbalance difference in how people interact with different ideas of the state especially in Scotland and England that when it comes to decolonizing it's it becomes a bit more tricky I think for people in Scotland to accept that psyche that we did stuff with England that was bad mm. and I think it's in with that there was a with decolonizing we can't decolonize if we don't remove the structures that actually uphold racism and uphold colonialism and uphold inequality because unless we do that then we're still upholding the notions of colonialism which is superiority it's british superiority or french superiority mm. or dutch superiority whatever and that's what that is now my question to you is how can we decolonize other intellectual institutions besides the museum like universities and the curriculums we have in these educational institutions and before you take the computer from me, I wanted to give the example that in the English department at the School of History in St. Andrews, we have something called Anything But the West Reading Group, which I cannot lie, I have not been, but I believe it's a reading group that meets, I would say, once a week. And they have different topics for discussion. I know I saw one about disability the other week, uh, and I believe they read texts or and discuss texts that are anything but the west and that's i think one of the steps that the english department at the university that is extremely whitewashed in the english department in the books that are chosen to be read and chosen to be valued as examples of british culture and british literature that is notable that is worth studying and that everyone should study in compulsory <laughs> like english classes to become an english major you have to read all sorts of old just such old boring British text anyway I think this is an example that the department itself I believe it was student founded this anything but the west reading group and I believe some professors are also involved in it however this is a I want to say student-led initiative that is working I guess you could say to decolonize the curriculum in the English department for example but yeah do you have any examples or ideas that you've seen work yes Oh, really? Tick. So I remember when I was applying to do my undergrads, I was interested because I found out about this research that was taking place in Glasgow in the history department mm -hmm. by two, well, one doctor, one professor, Dr. Stephen Mullen and Professor Simon Newman. And I think Simon Newman really led this. And what these two professors did 
in the history department was to research and publish a paper exploring the exact ways the university profited from slavery mm. and the way they did this is just like i thought it was very well very well done because what they did was that they looked at the financial donations and bequests that people had left behind etc in the past and whether and even if that money did not directly come from a slave owner or someone who ran, like owned a nation they they also had people who sold boats to people running the slave trade or operated the customs or took part in the slave trade and they worked out how much money had gone into the university and of course like due to the way money works the money looks tiny at that time however they managed they calculated it in 2016 money using three different metrics and they worked out that in total the uni had made 198 650 no a hundred <laughs> the number that we were struggling with. Okay, alright. 198,657,619 pounds. Nice job. From slavery. Um Wow, that's a lot of money. Which is a lot of money. <laughs> and that was that's like stuff that's left for scholarships or grants or funding. And I this is one of my key points, but it's like despite this despite this excellent research that like mm. exposed so much about how western universities and especially british universities profited massively from slavery because of the way that academia especially in the past was so much more uh institution related to the aristocracy so mm. the arist the colonial transatlantic trade mm. the people who profited from that gave money back into that circle but yeah anyway despite that despite this excellent research the uni basically was like well done gave them a pat on the back said well we're gonna name a new building after the first person of color to graduate from the uni and decided don't know the exact number but they gave scholarships to the university of west indies so people from the university of west indies could get a scholarship to come to the university of glasgow that's it and they did a little bit and that's did they, it can i ask did this like exhibition or this research get publicized like did the university put it up on a plaque do a little exhibition about it there wasn't so much an exhibition it was published and it is it was like a paper it's a paper and the paper is quite easy to find but it gained a lot of national attention when it came out in the news like a lot of news places picked it up and researched into it the simon human i think was in the news discussing it like it became quite big yeah, but I feel like this could be that could be such an interesting exhibition to explore the research methods of how they went out went about finding out this information in this like paper trail that probably how they were worried or not worried or bracing themselves to release it to the public because I think they probably if they were academics at the University of Glasgow coming out and saying the university profited over one hundred million dollars from like slave uh, trade basically or colonialism would be a bit scary to come out and say that so i wish on a star that uh they could have done something a bit more like interactive for the public to see agree I, and i think it would be really good if they did something as well with the material mm, yeah. objects that are in the Ship university records, stuff like that. or but even like stuff in the university that was granted to mm. the university like that the university has financially with the financial money that pro they profited from slavery what has been built because research into decolonizing and slavery and the legacies of empire can be really really important and work towards decolonizing 
the wider world and dismantling structures. However, the problem is, is that even if the institutions have commissioned them or institutions let academics or researchers yeah. do this research, it means nothing if nothing's done with that. Yeah. Or just the bare minimum's done. If it's just like, I hate to use the word, virtue signaling. If you just virtue signal that, you know, oh yeah, we did this research. Oh yeah, we know that we did bad stuff and then decide to name a building after someone. <laughs> like okay but you could have done so much more to actually address the money that was spent you know reparations and it's the fact that the university said we'll do the bare minimum the research not been touched since Mm. and that's the problem and the research that these academics have done is so useful but that institutions don't know what to do with it because they face backlash from different people as Mm. soon as it gets published or as soon as there's an inclination of it being negative towards institution 100%. But I think there's a good example from St. Andrews. Oh, you think it's good? Well, not a good example, but a good example of why backlash. So speaking of universities, I want to go into the university's recent recollecting Empire Museum exhibition in the Wardlaw Museum. I'm going to read parts of this article written by Dr. Catherine Eagleton, who's the director of libraries and museums at the University of St. Andrews. This is from August 1st, 2022, and it's written on the museum blog. It's called Why We Are Recollecting Empire. And for anyone who wasn't in St. Andrews when this exhibition was going on, there were pamphlets everywhere, every coffee shop. They were advertising this exhibition every single where. <laughs> and in the World of Museum, there's the permanent exhibition and there's an exhibition on the bottom floor that's basically next to all the permanent exhibitions. So it's logically the place you'll go after you go into the permanent exhibition. So it's pretty, I guess it's a pretty big deal. So with this, <laughs> the first line of this article is, <laughs> Ooh, you can lab react to this. Empire has some tangled legacies. For some people, colonial expansion brought glory, power, and a great deal of wealth. For others, it spelled disaster. Jesus Christ. Do you have anything to say? Not much, but Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, we're going to continue. I wrote, yikes. <laughs> Why do you think Empire has some tangled legacies? Like, if I wrote that in an essay, they'd be like, no, don't say that. For my opinion, disaster is, like, a weird term. First of all, I think of, like, natural disasters when it was, like, inevitable. And it is almost too light of a term. I would also say it lacks agency. It's on, like, oh, it just... It, it just happened. Like, a disaster is something that happens okay. without agency when we know that Empire was with agency mm. and it wasn't a disaster that just happened. Yeah, but then it goes on to say, quote, you'll see these legacies in museums. So like speaking about colonial, like Empire, the legacy of the Empire. So they say you'll see these legacies in museums. In many museums, some of the objects on display or in storage came to the collection from imperial or colonial context, legitimately or otherwise. Legitimately or otherwise kind of shook me a bit. Because I was like, what, like, are you going to expand on this? They don't expand upon what legitimately means or otherwise. And they just say that these objects embody stories of people, countries, and cultures who are subsumed into one empire or another. And then it says, in St. Andrews, the first university museum was established by members of the Literary and Philosophical Society in 1838, who filled it with objects from around the world. Some of the people who gave things to the collection had lived and worked in colonized countries, but the information they recorded about an object was often scant, saying little of what it was or how it was acquired. 
A bill acquired at this time, for example, is recording the society's minutes simply as a handbell from China. Nothing else is said about how it was obtained, which part of China it's from, what its original use was. The truth is, it's not a handbell at all, but part of a much larger set played with hammers and in the sacred and royal ceremonies. Described as a handbell, this object was reduced to being a curiosity, its cultural importance removed. This lack of information makes responding to legacy vampire that we find in our collections more difficult. Nevertheless, we believe that it's important to tackle these legacies. That's why we've written it into our strategic plan that one of our goals at the, of, at the Museum of the University of St. Andrews is to tackle institutional legacies and work for a more inclusive and equitable future. Recollecting empire is a central part of this. However, the exhibition is not the end of this process. Rather, it's a statement of progress and of intention, as well as a starting point for conversations that need to be had. The Recollecting Empire exhibition at the War Museum is the result of a lot of careful thinking and consultation about how we tackle the colonial legacies in our collection. It's one of our first attempts to explore these stories publicly and try new ways of telling them, with the voices of those who have often been excluded at the forefront. I'm going to pause here and just take a moment to tell everyone that the University of St. Andrews was founded in 1413. The Philosophic Society was founded um over almost 200 years ago right and that's when i start the first museum the fact that only now in 2022 they started even thinking about empire is a bit scary to me and then the framing of it's a first attempt to explore these stories publicly is also very interesting to me of like don't get us wrong we're trying our best we're trying our best like made this strategy and trialing is like, we're going to try, but we can't really promise you anything. And I mean, it, I think the example of the handbell is very interesting. because it is like, how, how do you interrogate historical objects that you have an account from someone, but it could be completely wrong? To me, it seems like one of the things you can do, which I hope is happening a bit more, is not taking what, like people who went to... Uh, places of empire and took things back i'm not taking what they're saying seriously or like at least interrogating it a bit more like had done here the university of Andrews just did to debunk that this object was not a handbell at all and then i wanted to say the it ends with this the exhibition is part of the process we will probably get things wrong but we will learn from it listen to our visitors and improve so we can really can work for a more inclusive and equitable future I wrote, this is off topic, but the sentence is so St. Andrews. One of my things with this uni is they love to say, we're trying, we're trying, we're trying, which I get. They are some people and this uni is trying, but it really makes them seem like the victim, like that this university is being victimized for actually like being held accountable to tell different narratives than they're used to telling. And one the only i so i went to the last exhibition it is very interesting how they set it up they have objects and they have quotes written by say winston churchill or by like very famous imperial british figures and they have some like the words highlighted like words related to empire and stuff or sometimes they cut stuff out it almost feels not crafty but it feels like someone is really trying to dissect empire in a way and what i also like is they had this little interactive part where you could put what empire means to you so I think engaging with public ideas and stuff like that is great. I think interactiveness in an exhibition that goes beyond like interactive science exhibit exhibits for kids is great. But I this article, I can't lie, it kind of put me off a bit. Like the way that 
they're trying to, it almost feels like they're using this exhibition as like a checklist of like, yep, we did this and we're gonna get things wrong and shut up. But that exhibition is actually over. I don't know how long it was on display. I wanna say it was on display for about two to three months. The University of St. Andrews is number one in the UK. Like it is in some way, in my opinion, your responsibility to set as the number one university in the UK. An example for the rest of the universities in the UK, decolonizing stuff rather than saying like, this is a first attempt and we're gonna get stuff wrong. So be quiet. I mean, I think it's this Wardlaw exhibition is an interesting one because the university essentially do <laughs> not want to get entangled in a culture war, mm-hmm. um, which as it turns out, it did anyway. One of the big parts of decolonizing exhibitions and exhibitions like that is that it's so important to work in the how it's publicized because if you publicize it in the right way especially when not in the way St. Andrews did if you then there's less openness for critique from the right-wing media however St. Andrews didn't discuss how to publicize it they publicized it to students and they made people aware but in terms of wider media attention which these exhibitions now do get because mm. of the culture war, because of the way academics, especially in the humanities and institutions that feature heavily in the, in the humanities, are getting are part of the culture are being put in the crosshairs by the Tories and like the right wing tabloids. And regardless of how the university sought to publicize it and make it successful, the Daily Mail, for example still still wrote an article the headline of the article is golf balls are a product of colonial (laughs) exploitation and say british empire imposed a game around the world and harvested rubber from southeast territories to make balls for the european market exhibition reveals the way it's such a long title it's it's five lines this is daily mail online wrapped up in one (laughs) also part of a broader trend of academic decolonization accelerated by they they like say it's accelerated by the black lives matter protests in 2020 which i don't know if it's a direct correlation exactly and when newspapers especially tabloid media like the daily mail or the sun or whatever draw attention to a really niche part of like a decolonizing (laughs) exhibition like golf balls like it shows what they're trying to do is to make it the research and the exhibitions seem very stupid stupid but also just like focus on these niche little things that actually you know they imposed golf balls and the rest of the world these specific type of golf balls when without engaging with the wider nuances of why that's bad because they harvested rubber from trees in southeast asia that probably destroyed the environment there and destroyed a lot more stuff there but then on the top of that you also have there's probably there's so much more in that exhibition actually tackled colonial legacy mm-hmm. they think it's typical of like places that don't know how to publicize these exhibitions well that they end up getting caught up in these media storms which is what happened in st andrews i mean i didn't actually go to this exhibition so i can't speak on this but i got told that there was a professor discussing how a specific artifact had a ton of meaning to their local area i said this artifact means so much and it just hadn't been treated like that mm. And it was probably one of the more moving parts of the exhibition from what I was told of people who had been, but it was just stuffed in the corner because it was like seen as unimportant because it was just focusing on this little object and it wasn't exciting history. I think that's a very key part of this as well is that is the stories, the actual stories of people discussing like culturally important artifacts that get often get 
pushed it aside. Yeah, it's a tiny object that has big meaning. If you put it in a corner, it's going to seem like something unimportant. But say you put a tiny object that has a lot of cultural meaning in the center, and it almost draws attention to, you know, you're like, why is this in the center? And then you realize, and like you read about it, that could be very moving and powerful. Another dimension to decolonization that actually inspired me to talk about this with Emil is the concept of natural history. We were having a discussion about this, and I was like, oh my God, we have to do a podcast episode about this. So natural history definition of it or at least to me what that natural history is is like animals and plants and like you go to a museum and you have the nice little dinosaurs and like elephants and like oh it's so fun do we have the bell pedigree museum which we already spoke about a bit it has many animals and artifacts from other explorers or you know colonizers and one problem we run into over and over is the false assertion of objectivity, especially related to science, because this was what sparked our conversation was like, an animal is an animal, but the way that we discuss how animals and species have, say, traveled or like been brought from different continent to another continent and, say, bred there or changed over time because they moved to a different habitat. I'm really pulling out all these words from like seventh grade science. <laughs> the way I think that you walk into, say, a place where you see because of cute animals and all sorts of animals and plants, you don't really, you're not really pushed to such deep critical thinking about why was this animal in this part of England or Scotland at this time period. This was the time of this colonial expedition. And you think that they're just pushing science. But there is culture and context to be reckoned with. Not only do you have animals in natural history museums that are now extinct or are now endangered, a lot of the reason is that people, botanists or whoever, find these animals and they bring them back to the UK or whatever through certain ways. And they look at them to dissect them or to discuss them, to explore them. So they do that and great they've got this animal and in the past they were like okay we've got this cool animal that no one knows of but when they research it they find it's got different properties they can use different parts of it or it becomes like a sought after animal for a pet for the aristocracy so then these animals then get started hunted more and more or caught more and more so they're taken away from their natural habitat yeah maybe and then on top of that you also have the impact of colonialism which is the like industrialization of these countries to destroy the rainforests or the forests or their natural habitats, be able to exploit and make as much profit from these countries. Which means a lot of animals ended up dying out or losing their habitat or their habitat changing. So there's that side of it, but then there's also a really interesting side is the botanical part of it. Natural history is not just the animals in a museum, it's the, it's the process of finding those animals mm. or the process of medicine. And medicine is a really big part of natural history. Mm. And there's a really good article that I read called by these two people, Das and Lowe, and they wrote on natural history for a decolonial approach. And they bring to attention a really good case study, which I think is very, very useful. So this healer and botanist called Kwasim Ukamba, who had a plant named after him, Kwasia Amara, was enslaved as a child and taken to Suriname, which was a Dutch colony. So during his time in Suriname, he acted as a scout and a negotiator for the Dutch. But in this time, he was known for his healing. He found, used this plant, the Cassia Amara, to treat parasitic intestinal infections with a tea. 
I needed that when I had my parasite from Fiji for real. Mm-hmm. And his formula for the tea was bought by this guy called Daniel Rolander, who took it back to Europe and it became a really big deal dealing with parasites. They used this tea. So this guy became known for medicine in the colonies with mm. the indigenous people and with the colonialists. Mm. He like the colonists, like he worked with both, giving them like these med medicinal properties. However, this is the big problem is that in the Natural History Museum in London, which is this huge space. Yeah one of the most famous natural yeah. history museums in the world it's it's huge because it has so it's much York, stuff yeah. but in one part of it it doesn't it has all these artifacts and doesn't go into depth about where they came from mm. or their cultural contexts but in this specific case with Kwasi as he's also known they have this big mural based on a ceiling in this place called Hintze Hall which had a ton of art of plants and the people who discovered them and such like he does not appear oh. And it's just very typical for these sorts of places to have this plant that's had such a huge impact on medicine, such as the Quasia Amara, which is named after this guy who was enslaved by the Dutch and then by the British and whose tea was transported around the world. He was completely exploited for his medicinal mm-hmm. discovery. His name is not anywhere there, barring the plant that was named after him. And it's just very typical is that they present the history of different plants or different specimens but they're capturing them as if they were vacuum as if these these animals or these plants or these butterflies or these whatever existed completely within a vacuum without other people that were doing that and especially a lot of the time the indigenous people in these countries that were colonized were the ones that actually helped with the discovery yeah so many examples of this that the indigenous people because of what they knew about botany or herbal medicine in their home country in their homeland with their plants that they know became just completely like wiped out of the history of the discovery of medicine colonists just discovered it one day as if like other people weren't there and weren't giving them this information yeah it's like the information that they gain is it's not information sharing it's an information discovery because in the ideas of colonialism and western supremacy that's exactly what they believe mm. that the indigenous people didn't have the same brain power or whatever as the westerners so people don't tend to know that there's a context behind that they because a lot of the time people think they're replicas not actual taxidermied animals on another side now i also think it's important for element temporary of the animals or plants to be discussed whether these are at risk because of the climate crisis or whether these are at risk because of deforestation and stuff like that whether these animals that we're looking at like oh wow that's a cute animal whether they're at risk and we just don't know because these museums aren't talking about why they're at risk because another bit of like important important part of it especially in britain is that a lot of these museums are sponsored by huge oil companies yeah. the british museum is a big example it's like one of its biggest sponsors i believe is shell or bp mm. so of course they're not going to tackle the ideas of the decarbonization mm. or tackle the climate crisis in their exhibitions because it doesn't suit them because they'll lose money. You should their investors. Yeah. It doesn't suit their investors. And I think that's, it's just this ever-ending cycle that seems to happen with these museums. So it's time to break out of that. Mouse deer. Oh, guys. Can you explain the mouse deer to close us out? So, there is this Are animal. You... <laughs> look it up, look up mouse deer. Chef Rotano mouse deer. The... It looks like a little mouse and a deer combined. Like he has the face of a mouse and the legs. He has such skinny legs. He has a little fat body. And you saw him in Warsaw, right? In real life. No, I didn't see him in Warsaw. You kept on telling me that you saw him in Warsaw. No, he's in Warsaw. 
He's in the Warsaw Zoo, no? So he's in the Warsaw Zoo. Okay. Because they're found in the South and Southeast Asia. So the fact... <laughs> but anyway, they're the cool they're cool animals and they're terrifying because apparently they kick really well. <laughs> um, I was that tiny, like I saw a video of them and they just run around. <laughs> and they just run around. They're crazy. Oh, like there's one. You. Oh, hey, yo. <laughs> <laughs> Not the Wikipedia having a photo of mating mouse tear. <laughs> Wait. Well, I don't know really what there is to say. Like, there's one in Warsaw, this in the zoo, which is funny because it's a zoo, but these people are from South and Southeast Asia. These people? These little fellas. They're fellas. So, yeah, I just, I feel like it's an example of an interest, <laughs> as much as I just love, like, last year, they're so cute. They are an example of an 10 extant species. Do you know found in forests in South and Southeast Asia? A single species, the water chevrotain, is found in the rainforests of Central and West Africa. They are solitary or live in loose groupings or pairings, feed almost exclusively on plant material. And they're the smallest hoofed animals in the world. So they have mm-hmm. the tiniest little hooves. They weigh between 1 and 17 pounds. Imagine weighing 1 pound. Yeah, so they've been around for 34 million years as well. This is why natural history is so important. But thank you for listening. Emil, thank you for coming on the pod. Do you have anything to say to the listeners? Shout out the French strikers. What are they striking about? The French be striking all the time. Basically, uh, right now, Macron uh, passed a bill for Parliament without anyone in Parliament voting for it that increases the retirement age by two years and it's so undemocratic because no one in parliament got the vote for it and they're all striking and they're all burning stuff and it's great so have fun shout out to the french anything else shout out to ucu keeping on the strikes yeah oh shout out barry will shout out barry will for winning the presidency for real we were on as we spoke about at the beginning of this episode or the mayor's petition if you haven't already i can't believe it's been like two or three weeks since petition comes out and the uni hasn't said anything and i feel like they shouldn't be getting away with that also sign um Oh, yeah. A petition on the Student Solidarity Network's Facebook and Instagram. It's trying to get fossil fuel companies out of university. Yeah, so that basically fossil fuel companies can't come to, I guess, careers events, Yeah, right? come to careers events and get people to work for their horrific stuff. Yeah, so thank you all for listening. I hope you learned something. If you ever want to come on the pod, message. If you have any thoughts, if you hated this episode, let me know. If you hate a meal, let me know. Thank you for listening and have a hot girl history day. Lie, eat hot chip, lie. Be bisexual. I'm literally cutting all that out. <laughs> Bye. Bye.